Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. In this week's episode of This Week in Business History, we'll be remembering business history stories, innovations, inventions, and firsts that took place over the years between October 11th and the 15th. Now, I've set out quite a challenge for myself in this week's episode. Not only am I going to tell you about John Nash and Milton Friedman, two groundbreaking mathematicians and economists who won Nobel Prizes in economics during this week's dates, but I'm also going to attempt to explain the logic and real-world application of the theories that won them their Nobel Prizes. So wish me luck, and you might just want to sit down. Before we begin, let me share a little history about the award that was given to both of these men during this week in history the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. First things first, this award is not a Nobel Prize. The quote-unquote real prizes were endowed in Alfred Nobel's will. They are awarded for physics, chemistry, either physiology or medicine, literature, and peace, but not economics. That said, the nomination process, selection criteria, and awards presentation of the prize in economic sciences are much like the original or real Nobel Prizes. The laureates, or the winners, are announced with the Nobel Prize laureates, and they receive their awards at the same ceremony. So you can understand the confusion. Now, some people are very upset about the mere existence of this award, including Peter Nobel, a member of the Nobel family. He sees the award as a misuse of his family's name, and he has often made the case that no member of his family ever had the intention of creating a prize in economics. He has even accused economists of creating the award as, quote, a PR coup by economists to improve their reputation. And since economics is known as the dismal science, he may have a point. So that is the first controversy surrounding the award commonly known as the Nobel Prize in Economics that we will cover in this episode, but it is definitely not the last. First up is Milton Friedman. He was an American economist and statistician born in Brooklyn, New York in 1912. Money was scarce when he was young, but his family was very close and supportive. Friedman showed potential from an early age and graduated high school two years early. 
He graduated from Rutgers and then got a master's degree from the University of Chicago. With few opportunities available to work in academia, he went to Washington, D.C. and worked as part of multiple federal programs. Some of his economic philosophies would start to take shape during this time, as he agreed with parts of President Roosevelt's New Deal and disagreed with others. For instance, he felt that federal efforts towards job creation were a critical lifeline for many people who needed them. But he saw any effort by the government to regulate or fix prices as muting or blocking signals about where resources were really needed and wanted. Think about it as messing with signals of supply and demand. On October 14, 1976, Milton Friedman was announced as the sole recipient of that year's Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences for his work on consumption analysis, monetary policy, and for demonstrating the complexity of stabilization policy. In plain language, sort of, his work would be used by central banks, country banks such as the Federal Reserve in the U.S., to inform their monetary policies. Milton argued that economies naturally want to achieve equilibrium or stability. And so too much poking, prodding, and stirring on the part of the Fed or another central bank, despite how well-intentioned it was, would actually cause more trouble and cause the instability to last longer rather than being resolved sooner. Okay, are you ready for some more controversy? In 1975, the year before Friedman won the award, he had gone to Chile and spoken about the importance of economic freedom. At the time, the country was ruled by Augusto Pinochet, a military dictator. Many in the academic community criticized the time he spent in Chile and his relationship with Pinochet. But Friedman defended himself by explaining that he never supported the communist regime and that in his opinion, by bringing his ideas about economic freedom to Chile, he helped accelerate the transition to capitalism seen in the 1990s. But that wasn't enough for everyone. The economist who had won the Nobel Prize the year before Friedman actually spoke out against him being selected as a laureate. And others spoke out against the award itself simply because it was now associated with Friedman. Despite continuing to draw criticism on and off for the rest of his life, Friedman worked as an economist, performing independent research until his death in 2006. And although not everyone shares his economic and political points of view, his work and writing continue to have an impact around the world. So that is our first Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, dated October 14, 1976. Just about 20 years later, our next featured person will receive his prize. On October 11th, 1994, John Nash won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, and his story offers us a lot of twists and turns, as well as controversies of its own. Born on June 13th, 1928, Nash was made famous by the movie A Beautiful Mind, which addressed both his genius and struggles with mental health. A quick side note on that, Nash disagreed with how he was portrayed in the movie, specifically how they addressed his use of drugs in the battle against paranoid schizophrenia, 
So consider that an adaptation, maybe, rather than a straight historical movie. Nash received his undergraduate degree from the school that would later become known as Carnegie Mellon University and did graduate work at Princeton. He began his studies in engineering and then moved into chemistry before finally settling on a career in mathematics. His professors advocated for him throughout his journey, publicly referring to him as a genius on multiple occasions. According to them, he was able to do math that most other people could not even comprehend. Like Friedman, Nash dabbled in monetary theory. He believed that money was so motivating that it often led people to make short-term decisions that were against their own best interests in the long run. What he liked most, though, was defining his own problems and then following his own approach to solving them much like his work on game theory. Nash's research into game theory not only earned him a Nobel Prize in economic science, it also led him to articulate the Nash Equilibrium, a critical concept in understanding non-cooperative games. Now this is where we get our business tie-in. Although we're using the word game, we're not talking about Scott Luton's beloved Atlanta Braves we're really talking about the kind of dynamic most of us would associate with a negotiation. These so-called games are interactive situations between rational players that don't necessarily know the values and drivers of the other players, but their own choices can be affected by moves that the others make. Nash's equilibrium is the point in that game when each of the players has reached the point where they cannot improve their own outcome by making a change all by themselves. Sometimes referred to as the point of no regrets, the Nash equilibrium would require multiple players to change their position at the same time, cooperatively you might say, in order to improve their outcome. But since game theory usually describes adversarial interactions, that is very unlikely to happen. But I promised you controversy, and John Nash gives us a few. His Nobel Prize was awarded for work done with a couple of colleagues while he was attending graduate school at Princeton. Before he could be awarded the prize, however, the award committee insisted upon having verification that he was well enough mentally to receive the recognition. But that wasn't his only controversy. Some people were upset that he was being given the award despite showing signs of mental illness. Other people were upset because he had been accused of being anti-Semitic. And still others were upset because John Nash was not an economist. Now, he did receive the award in 1994, but two lasting changes were made as a result. The award was expanded from just focusing on economics to addressing work in all of the social sciences, things like linguistics, management science, political science, psychology, and history. In addition, the award committee, which previously had no term limitations, started containing members to three years of participation, after which time they would have to step down. Sadly, John Nash and his wife Alicia were both killed in a car accident on the New Jersey Turnpike in 2015. Neither of them were wearing a seatbelt at the time, 
and when their taxi driver lost control of the car and hit the guardrail, they were both ejected from the vehicle. Milton Friedman and John Nash were complicated men who certainly made their mark on economics and history. They understood that modeling and studying complex systems, even in the theoretical sense, made it possible for companies and governments and individuals to better understand their own motivations and control their own behaviors, hopefully leading to more ideal outcomes. But I don't want to leave you with a car crash and deep thoughts about game theory. So I think we have time for one more story. Now, speaking of complex systems, why do you think most people work an eight-hour day and a 40-hour work week? For those standards, you can thank a man named George Francis Johnson, born on October 14, 1857. He was the co-owner of eight large shoe factories in New York State. But he didn't just have his employees punch the clock. No, he considered hourly pay to be mental slavery. Like Friedman and Nash, who were able to understand systems and choices in parallel, he understood that helping his employees connect their work ethic to their pay was in his best interests and theirs. He implemented unit production-based wages, where employees were paid for how much progress they made during a shift rather than how long they were physically present in the building. Although he paid some of the highest wages in manufacturing at the time, his company was consistently profitable. He also understood how attractive additional benefits could be to employees. He offered comprehensive medical care as well as access to quality affordable housing, parks with swimming pools and carousels, restaurants, and libraries. During World War I, his factories made every single pair of military boots worn by U.S. soldiers. Here is a quote from George Francis Johnson offered up to explain his philosophy to workforce management. To know in the morning that your compensation is fixed. To know that you must do the same thing all day long. To know that whether you do a little more or a little less, whether you are more or less interested and more or less efficient, your pay is automatically fixed, creates the most deadly monotony that I can believe possible. Here's to people who prefer to define their own problems and then go out and find revolutionary solutions to them, whether it is monetary policy, game theory, or making the most of a fixed work week. On that note, it's time to wrap up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from. And be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing you all nothing but the best. On that note, we'll see you here next time on This Week in Business History.